You want to find a seat? We're going to go ahead and get started. Good to see you guys this morning. If you want to find a seat, we're going to go ahead and jump in here. As we continue our Saints series, actually this is week three out of four. One more Saint after this. Um, a few years back in my doctoral program, I was asked to watch a film in one of my classes called Of Gods and Men. Has anybody seen this film, Of Gods and Men? Anybody? Okay, a, f a few folks. It's a, it's a French language film, which means it has subtitles, which is not my favorite thing. Um, but I had to watch it. And this film blew me away. It was just so beautiful and powerful. Um, often, films depicting Christianity is like a non-starter. They're just cringy as can be. They're either like propaganda films that end up being all sentimental or, or they're like hit jobs on Christianity or, or religious people in general. But this film wasn't like that. It's just a beautiful depiction of what seems to me authentic Christianity. And it's actually a true story. Um, and I want to talk about these monks today, the monks of Tiberine. Um, these are, this is a picture of them. These nine men living in a monastery in, in Algeria in the 1990s. It was a Trappist order Trappists are an order of Benedictine monks who live a life of fidelity, contemplation, and manual labor. And they were technically missionaries, but their goal was not to convert the mostly Muslim population to Christianity. Their goal was simply to be good neighbors, to organize their common life in such a way that they would be good news to their neighbors. And along the way, I think that, I mean, my take is they, they became a living embodiment of the famous uh, line from St. Francis, where he said, share the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That's how they lived. Their lives revolved around prayer at fixed hours in the day, and in between, service to God and their neighbors, which they viewed as one and the same thing. In much of the film, it's interesting, it's quiet and slow. It's just showing a bunch of monks doing monk things, like um, <laughs> sharing, sharing meals together, praying in their chapel, working in the fields, reading scriptures and studying in silence, teaching school children, administering medicine. And, and I know it may sound weird, but like to me, some of the most powerful scenes in the film were just these quiet conversations that they would have while they were eating dinner together. This is where they discussed how they should respond to the events of their day that would soon throw them all into the international spotlight. The story takes place during a tumultuous time in Algeria, a majority Muslim nation in North Africa. It's a former French colony just across the Mediterranean from mainland Europe. This was in the 1990s where they were still dealing with um, the painful legacy of colonialism. And, you know, Emerging from European control usually involves corrupt governments in the beginning, um, newly formed governments, just terribly corrupt, which is what happened in Algeria. There was this cycle of corruption and chaos and deposing in the new regimes, and 
it kind of culminated in a 10-year span of violence that they called the Black Decade, a long civil war between the Algerian government and, and various Islamic rebel groups from 1992 to 2002. In the film, we learn about one of the Islamic fundamentalist group who were trying to take power in Algeria. And their, their goal is to set up a, a theocratic Muslim state. And in territories that they controlled, they would expel or just outright kill all foreign nationals. And so there's this deep contrast set up between these militant fundamentalists and this little community of monks tucked, tucked away deep in the Atlas Mountains. And um, this little village that grew up around them, a bunch of French monks living lives of quiet service for, you know, close to a century. And this village that grew up around the monastery and the monks were kind of the lifeblood of this little town. And they leveraged everything to create a good life for the peasants around them. They built a school and offered free education for the children. They grew a ton of food that they shared with all the villagers. They built a health clinic and offered free medical treatment and medicines to a bunch of folks that really before this had no access to modern medicine. And everything they did was offered just as a gift to their community, not to trick them into becoming Christians. This is Algeria, not America, where we do that sort of thing. And it's just to make a better life for, for their neighbors. They didn't proselytize or try to convert people. They just tried to love people and be good neighbors, treating everyone with dignity and respect. And because of this, these monks were deeply loved and appreciated by the Algerian people. They built these deep and meaningful relationships that were reciprocal. So the villagers were impacting the monks as much as the monks impacting the villagers. And they were all poor, all of them, the monks included. But they lived lives of service to each other and, and were intertwined, like interconnected. And so they had these rich relationships. And what, uh, what looks to me or sounds to me from their writings like contentment or even maybe even shalom, peace. In the first part of the film, they take a lot of time just showing that what daily life was like for this little village um, both the, for the indigenous people and the monks, and they had a really good thing going. They were living at a sane pace. Everyone had work to do, um, had food to eat, a place to live, and friendship, deep relationships that formed over time, despite of, or maybe even because of, their cultural and religious differences. But then this political unrest and violence came to their little village members of the GIA, or the Armed Islamic Group of Algeria, this insurgency group who was fighting to bring down the government, they began terrorizing the people of the region. And many people from this little town and the, and the region around it were killed in their attacks. And they especially targeted foreign nationals, like these, like these monks. Everyone suddenly was afraid that they could show up at any moment and you know, take their money, take their food, force young men to fight with them, and they were incredibly violent, like indiscriminately so. And they began showing up at the monastery, asking for medicine and care for their soldiers who were injured, and the monks really struggled with what to do. Should they treat them or not? Because they were so violent and brutal to these neighbors they loved. And ultimately, they did help them, mostly because they just didn't know how to say no. It was so ingrained in them to love their enemies. It's really interesting that the villagers 
since they knew them, they, they all kind of, they understood why they had to. Who didn't understand was the government and the military. Um, they weren't too happy. They, in fact, wanted to station soldiers at the monastery, which they didn't allow. And so this, this rebel group kept showing up, demand, making demands, um, even while they were killing all the other foreign nationals all around them. And so the writing was kind of all on the wall. They're like, someday they're, they're probably going to come for us. And much of the film revolves around this ongoing conversation they would have at these, these meals. They would just sit and talk as the war raged on and their own situation began to deteriorate. They'd sit at dinner and talk about the events of the day, what was happening, how it was affecting the, the townspeople they loved, and the threat that they were feeling and what they should do. And, and the main question they talked about was, should we stay here, given the risk, or, or should we go? And um, knowing that any time could all go really south. And they were kind of all over the place in their opinions in, at the beginning. Some were scared and were like, I want out of here. Let's leave immediately. But some couldn't imagine leaving their friends and the children they taught in school and the sick that they helped every day with medicines and the hungry they fed from their own gardens. Abandoning their friends to the violent extremists just seemed wrong and some argued to stay. But they were all in kind of different places, and they were subject to one another, so they just kept talking. It's just this ongoing conversation that you sort of check in with throughout the film. I really wanted to show you a clip of one of these conversations because I, I love the way they're portrayed. Um, but if you show copyrighted material on, on YouTube now, their algorithm is so good, it will like shut down our live stream. So what you get to instead is me doing a semi-dramatic reading of this. <laughs> Am I, yeah. So use a fantastic French accent for you. Uh huh. Yeah. I won't. I won't inflict that on you. That's. I save that for my family. That special pain is for them. But I do want to just read this powerful scene that takes place at the dinner table. A monk called um, Celestine begins by saying, "If we stay, our lives would be at risk every day." And I became a monk to live, not to sit back and have my throat slit. And Christian agrees, you're right, Celestine, we should not be seeking martyrdom. Um, Christian um, de, de Cherge, um, was the, uh, the, he was the abbot, he had been elected their leader. Celestine says, maybe we should leave or take refuge in a safer place. Paul chimed in, there's another solution, we should leave for good. We should each decide according to his own conscience, conscience. go back to France or to another safer monastery in Africa. Jean-Pierre says, to leave is to run away, to lead the villagers to the terrorists. Paul says, so we do it gradually, so the villagers don't worry. Jean-Pierre says, that won't change a thing. The good shepherd doesn't abandon his flock to the wolves. Christophe offers, we should each express our own opinion about leaving. Jean-Pierre says, we stay, since when do we yield to arms Paul says, I think we should leave, but gradually. Celestine, or Celestine says, I'm ill, I want to go. And then Luke, Luke was the doctor, he says, to leave is to die. I'm staying. Michelle says, I have no one else anywhere. I'm staying. Amadi says, I don't know yet. I think we need to pray together and think. Christoph says, I think we should leave. And then Luke says to the leader, Christian, 
he says. And you, Christian? And Christian says, I agree with Amadi. It's too early to decide. And then Christian pauses and he looks at each of them and looks up to God and says this line that's from their liturgy that they would say every day. He says, help comes from the Lord. And since they know the answer, they answer liturgically, who made the heavens and the earth. They say it in, in unison. It kind of concludes the conversation. It's this beautiful picture, I think, of um, what, call, what Paul called the church to when he said, be subject to one another. This is how you do it. This poignant scene. You can just feel the tension. They're so scared. They don't want to leave their friends, though, and they, they don't want to die, but they don't feel safe anymore. It's just it's this painful reality. What should they do? And nobody with any kind of power wanted them to say, like the terrorists want to purify the land of the infidels, the French government, the Algerian government, the army. They don't want them to become hostages in some international crisis. The villagers, however, are desperate for them, they're just begging them not to leave. There's this really sweet scene. It might be my favorite scene from the movie um, where the, the monks are visiting with some of the villagers. And the monk, one of the monks who's really scared, he says, we're too vulnerable here. He says, we are like birds on a branch. And then the woman chimes in and she says, no, no, father, we are the birds. You are the branch. If you go, we lose our footing. It's just this stunning moment where you realize these humble monks living in poverty, giving their lives away, have somehow become the footing for this whole village of Algerian peasants. As I rewatched it, the film this week, I, I, um, I realized, you know, most of us will never face a situation this dire. But I think we've all felt conflicted about how to respond to our lives, especially when it comes to things like politics and war foreign policy, violence. And we're all tempted to sort of um, pick a side and blame and take up arms, figuratively at least, and try to destroy the bad guys. It reminds me of this story from the book of Joshua where um, God's people have been asked to enter into the promised land and take their place among the nations of the world. They're camped, having just crossed the Jordan River, and the first city they encounter is Jericho, which is like famous for its fortifications and walls. And Joshua led the people up to the walls of the city. And there he encountered a man, it says, who appeared before him with his sword drawn. Um, the man is clearly a representative of God. This is something that happens a lot in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, a, a man will, will appear repping, repping God. Joshua went up to the man and asked him, are you on our side or on the side of our enemies? Which is, you know, a natural question. And then the man answered, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's heavenly force. Which if you think about it, is a pretty radical answer. I often think about this passage um, as I'm watching the events of the day unfold in our world. Things like terrorists butchering innocent people, armies bombing civilian populations indiscriminately. In conversations with my friends and colleagues, I sometimes feel as though I'm being asked the same question Joshua asked. Are you on our side or the side of our enemies? And there's this implication that they're asking this because they really believe that God is on their side, which is 
you know, something we all do. We all try to recruit God to our side in any serious conflict. I mean, this is what we do. We tell ourselves, we're the good guys. We're in the right. They're the problem, right? Kill the problem or solve it or change it. But as the Israelite armies faced their first major battle in the land, we have this story that really kind of muddies the waters. Joshua says, are you with us or with our enemies? Which is a legitimate question on the eve of battle. But the answer from God's representative is neither. Essentially, he's saying, you're in a struggle for power, for, for safety and security, for land, for for control of the world, and you live on this continuum of us versus them, and God does not live on that continuum. God has God's own perspective, God's own agenda. And the man rejects the the premise of the question, sort of on behalf of God. You think there are sides? There are no sides. There is only one humanity. To take up sides is, in a sense, the sin of Cain and Abel. All humans are brothers and sisters. To slice that family up into friends and enemies and then kill each other? God sides with nobody on that agenda. All killing is fratricide. The killing of brothers and sisters. Then the commander of the heavenly force says... Take your sandals off your feet because the place where you are standing is holy ground. This should immediately make us think of Moses, right? At the burning bush. God had asked Moses to enter his own conflict of the day, to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of the Hebrew people, and he was conflicted. He was, he was a Jew, but he had been raised like a son of, of Pharaoh. And he wanted no part of this conflict. He didn't want to fight. He, he had run far, far away to Midian. He had tried to stay away from it, and when it came to him, he tried to get out of it, try to disengage, stay disengaged, but God would not let him. God asked him to get involved, but not to raise an army and go to war. Moses never does this. Moses instead moves close, not to destroy Pharaoh, but to convince him to do the right thing. Remember, God sends 10 plagues Ten times reaches out trying to convince Pharaoh to repent and and change his mind, to come to his senses. It's ten times is a lot of times. That's a lot of second chances. That's more than I am usually willing to give. It's like God is making it obvious. God doesn't want to take sides, doesn't want to destroy Pharaoh. God's just trying to reconcile everything, everyone to him. And in times of war and violence, Everybody tries to recruit God to their side, and God says, which side am I on? Neither, man, neither. I have my own side, my own agenda, and and that agenda is peace. God chooses solidarity with the poor and the powerless, but not violence and war. The monks of Tiberine, they they were conflicted as well. French nationals living in, Ar- in Algeria. The government, the army, they were like Joshua going, which side are you on? Can we station people in your place? And the rebels were like the armies of Canaan, you know, just ready to kill anyone they saw as a threat. 
But when asked which side they were on, the monks, in a sense, said, neither. We live in peaceful solidarity with the least of these. And we call our warring brothers to stop killing each other. We stand with the peasants, the ones who are just trying to, you know, live their lives and feed their families. But all of a sudden, this choice was really, really dangerous. Any minute, the rebels could just show up and line them up against the wall and shoot them. They, they were doing it every day. One of the things that I love about the film is that they make it clear um, that in, in our tradition, martyrdom is not something we're supposed to try and instigate. When we talk about saints, you know, their lives are so extreme. Sometimes we think we, we should all be a, a martyr. But our tradition says if there's anything that we can do to avoid it, we're supposed to do it, it even if it's humiliating to us. And the main reason for this is we don't want to be the reason somebody else commits a murder. Like, we would rather be humiliated and humbled and considered weak or a fool than to be the reason someone else incurs the guilt of our murder. And over the course of the film, I think they, they do such a great job of portraying the real-life struggle that these monks went through 25, almost 30 years ago now. Someone to leave, someone to stay. Some are just wavering back and forth. But all of them just patiently talk. Because this is what Christians do when we're in conflict. We talk. We hold the tension. We keep the conversation open. And then finally in this really poignant scene, there's another dinner where they all have come around to a consensus. And they say, we're going to stay. We can't abandon our friends. Not to seek martyrdom, but to live in solidarity with the poor. And then early on the morning of March 27th, 1996, not that long ago, members of the armed rebels stormed into the abbey and kidnapped seven of the nine monks. Two of them had hidden, were hidden and they couldn't find them. They were held for two months while the GIA tried to swap them for one of their leaders who was in prison. And ultimately, on May, in May of 1996, their decapitated heads were found. They never found their bodies. They'd been killed by the rebels. There were seven of um, 19 Christian missionaries who were killed during that black decade. The seven monks um, later were beatified by the Pope and made official saints of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this is one of the official icons of the monks of Tiberine here. If you go to the next slide. The head of the Trappist order, a man named Bernardo Oliveira, later wrote about them. He said, what can a monk say about his brother monks, Christian, Luke, Christophe, Celestine, Bruno, Michael, or Michel, and Paul? They were living manifestations of the good news of the Gospels. A life given freely in the spirit of love is never a life lost, but one found again in him who is life. They showed that we must enter into the world of others, be that other a Christian or a Muslim. If that other does not exist, there can be no love of the other. So he says, let us learn to go beyond ourselves and to be enriched by those who are different. In the aftermath of the, the kidnapping and the violence, um, some of their papers and letters and journals um, were recovered 
from the monastery. And one of the first things they found was this um, letter found on Christian, the abbot's bed after his death. He had wrote it knowing that he was about to die. And um, it's really long. I won't read the whole thing, but um, it's, it's super, it's just really beautiful. And so I want to read a good chunk of it. This is what he says. If it should happen one day, and it could be today, that I become a victim of the terrorism, which now seems ready to encompass all the foreigners living in Algeria, I would like my community, my church, my family to remember that my life was given to God and to this country. I ask them to accept that the one master of all of life was not a stranger to this brutal departure. I ask them to pray for me, for how could I be found worthy of such an offering? I ask them to be able to associate such a death with the many other deaths that were just as violent but forgotten through, the indif through indifference and anonymity. My life has no more value than any other, nor any less value in any case. It has not the innocence of childhood. I've lived long enough to know that I share in the evil, which seems, alas, to prevail in the world. I should like, when the time comes, to have a clear space, he says, which would allow me to beg forgiveness of God and of my fellow human beings. And then he says what I can't believe he says, and to forgive with all my heart the one who would strike me down. He goes on to say, I could not desire such a death. It seems to me important to state this. I do not see, in fact, how I could rejoice if this people I love were to be accused indiscriminately of my murder. It would be to pay too dearly for what will perhaps be called the grace of martyrdom, to owe it to an Algerian whoever he may be, especially if he says he is acting in fidelity to what he believes to be Islam. For this life given up, totally mine and totally theirs, I thank God, who seems to have wished it entirely for the sake of that joy in everything and in spite of everything. In this thank you, which is said for everything in my life from now on, I certainly include you, friends of yesterday and today, and you, my friends of this place, along with my mother and father and brothers and sisters and their families. And you also, sorry, there's no way I'll get through this part without crying. <laughs> and you also, he says, the friend of my final moment, he's writing to the person who is coming to kill him. And to you also, my friend of that final moment, who would not be aware of what you're doing. For you also, I wish this thank you. And this adieu, um, adieu in French, they say goodbye. It literally means to God, this adieu. To commend you to the God whose face I see in yours. And may we find each other happy, good thieves in paradise, if it pleases God, the father of us both. Amen pretty stunning, isn't it? How do, you, how do you write that letter? We live in a world that is so broken. And 
we've been, I think all of us probably to some extent, kind of devastated by the events recently, especially in Israel and Gaza, which is, you know, watching that on the news and reading all week about this, it's just, I've just been holding them both. It's so confusing there, you know? Like the history, the dynamics, the politics are so complex, it's dizzying. Anti-Semitism is a problem of historic proportions. Tens of millions, maybe hundreds of Jews have been killed down through history for being Jewish. Jews need a place to live, a place to be safe and flourish. But their current leader and his hardcore right-wing fundamentalist government, it's, it's not okay. What Hamas did in this attack, what they're still doing to the hostages, it's not okay. It's unspeakably evil. It's indefensible, this kind of violence. But, of course, all Palestinians are not Hamas. What's happening in Gaza right now, it's not okay. The injustice Palestinians have faced for decades in Israel, it's not okay. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme against the Prince of Peace? I don't know. But I think Christian's right. I'm part of the problem, part of the darkness. And there's more than enough blame to go around. Whose side, though, should we be on as Christians? Well, there I think of Joshua and Moses and the monks of Tiberin, and I hope that my answer is neither. We can never split up the world into good guys and bad guys and try to kill the bad guys. Because the line between good and evil doesn't run between people or groups of people. It runs through every human heart and through every human community. The line between good and evil doesn't run between Jews and Palestinians. It runs down the middle of both of those families. And our tradition, the, the Christian tradition, the example of Christ asks us when we're faced with a conflict such as this to find the vulnerable ones within each family. And then, not to run off to Midian, to move close and stand in solidarity with them and call both warring sides to peace. The monks of Tiberin, they, they I think challenge us to even look into the face of our own enemies, those we blame, those who have hurt us. This is, this is hard to do, I know. And to see in their faces the face of God to learn to love them, to seek their flourishing. When faced with war and death or like very complex things like what's happening in the Middle East right now, the most common reactions are either you jump into the fray, pick an enemy and try to destroy them, fight, or keep a safe distance, right? And try not to get too involved, flee. The monks of Tiberine teach us there's a third option, which is to move close but not to destroy, to move close with peacemaking, to, to live in solidarity with friend and enemy alike. And what Jesus teaches is that this is how the kingdom comes. These monks, they could do this because 
their country was the kingdom of God. They were citizens of the kingdom. And so they saw themselves as sort of belonging to everyone. I mean, do you see what a miracle that is when it happens? And people have been so impacted by the love of God, by a community of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that they can greet everyone as brothers and sisters and love everyone, even their enemies. It's stunning. Jesus was, one time he was asked, so just nutshell it for us. Mr. talks a lot like, what, what are you doing? What's it all about? And he said, it's actually simple. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then when they let him really tease it out, he also said, you're going to have to learn to love your enemies. And the problem for us, of course, in this teaching is the neighbor part. Loving God is easy. It, It asks almost nothing. Loving your neighbor, man, it costs everything, everything. The problem is always loving the neighbor. The monks of Tiberine, they teach us that these two must always be held together. Love of God, love of neighbor. Service to God always means service to humans. Laying down our lives for them, not as like actual martyrs, but learning to die to ourselves, to each other in just thousands of tiny, unsexy ways every single day. As we move toward communion now in our service, I'm reminded this is the cup, man. This is the cup Jesus asks us to drink from. The cup of peace. And what he taught is the cup of peace is the cup of self-sacrifice. And it's like a, it's a hard teaching. But this is how the kingdom comes and it, it comes no other way. We're to hold no allegiance above our allegiance to the kingdom. To see all human beings as our brothers and our sisters. And so to refuse to will their deaths. Our role as Christians is not to win. Not to conquer. It's not even to survive. Our job is to love God, self, neighbor, even our enemy, and to stand in solidarity always with the outcasts of the world. And we know, we know the kingdoms of this world will always rage, but our task as followers of Christ is to not take sides, but also not stand at a safe distance. Our task is to draw near to the brokenhearted with peacemaking. This is the legacy of these seven faithful souls. So may God protect the memory of the monks of Tiberine. Hold it always before us and may their memory be a blessing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this story of these brave souls not so long ago in a world that was fighting the same battles we seem to still be fighting. 
and we pray for peace. And we pray that we wouldn't just pray as, you know, safe people far off and un, uninvolved. But we would find a way, God, to stand in solidarity with the outcasts on all sides. Pray that you would give us strength as a community and as persons to make this stand together given what that means people will say about us in this world. We pray um, for clarity for each of us in the dizzying confusion, confusion of world events um, to know with whom we stand. We stand with Christ our King. We stand as citizens of his kingdom and we stand in solidarity with the poor. And we thank you for the monks of Tiberi. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion. The reason we receive communion every week is on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he'd given thanks for it, he um, took this loaf of bread in this cup and he made all, all his community share in the same, same elements. And he said, whenever you gather from now on, I want you to, to share this symbolic meal. And this, this bread is like my body. This cup is like my blood, my life that's poured out for you. And he said, whenever you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup, take my life into your life and remember who you are. Remember what you're made out of. And so this is why we receive communion. And it's also why we just don't set any limits on it. Anybody, any struggler who calls on the name of Christ can join us at the table. So you're invited. Um, the way we do this is we're just um, released row by row. You'll be offered a plate of bread and, and a cup. You take a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. And as you receive it, they'll say, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable. But first, let's pray a blessing on this meal. Oh God, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?